morning. Last week, um, we started a new series called Gentle and Lowly. Um, and we have a book that is out in the foyer for anyone to take um, and read. And we're, we're going through this theme of who is Jesus as he's revealed himself. And the two words that he describes himself with are gentle and lowly. So that's what last week's message was about. And this week, what I want to focus on is what Jesus is about. What does he do? Like, what if he is gentle and lowly at his core, then what is his action that, that sh- flows from who he is? So we'll, we're going to talk about that. Um, but I want to remind you of the kind of core passage for this whole series. And that comes from Matthew chapter 11. And it says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's gentle and lowly in heart. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. So think about that for a second. What do you picture or what do you think of whenever you hear God, the word God? What feelings do you experience? This, according to Tozer, is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about the church. And for all of us, probably slightly different things have arisen in each of our minds. At various points in my life, I've thought of God in different ways. And I don't think I'm alone at this. Our, our understanding is always dynamic. Even our understanding of people we are close to changes. At one point, I hated my brother um, as a teenager. And then now he's my best friend, right? That, that happens. That happens in the life of your family and in your life with friends. You, you can change and your relationship is dynamic because our perception changes. At some points, uh, I thought of God um, based on my experience. I, I learned in Sunday school who God was through the stories that God is creator. He is powerful. He is in control and that he, he does love sinners, but he, he specifically loves them whenever they're, they're doing good things. And this was affirmed in my experience because I grew up in a strict household, um, a good household that was strict, but my, my parents would punish me whenever things went, whenever I was not doing what I was supposed to, I would be spanked. And whenever I did good things, I was rewarded. And so whenever I looked at God, I saw much the same person. I saw someone who rewarded the good and who would punish those who had done wrong. Um, whenever at school, I would get in trouble, um, perhaps for, for being mean. I've, I've thought about some stories that I could share, but I'm not going to share. I, I, was, I was largely like a pretty good kid, not, not going to lie, but there were some things. And like I was the type of kid, I did wrong things, and I just like fell apart. Like I just could not handle whenever a teacher would like be like, Eric, what are you doing? And so that would happen, though, occasionally. And I, I felt so just alienated from the teacher, from the class, and, like, in my own world. And, like, I just wanted to crumble up and, like, go away somewhere. I don't know. Um, 
but you feel this, this feeling of being uh, not accepted, rightfully so, for your actions, right? And a lot of this I carried over into my relationship with God. And because of what I had learned about God in the Old Testament and in the New, but in the stories of the Bible, um, and then with my experience, I affirmed what I believed about God, which was that he is just, he is holy, he is good, and he really likes the people who are doing good things, right? And so I believe that about God, and it changed the way that I experienced my entire life. Um, and obviously, there's some truth, some falsehoods in that. I'm not saying everything that I believed was true. Um, whenever I was younger, it was, it was pretty easy for me to believe that God was good, he's holy, he's just, and he accepts, or he accepts me on that basis, basically, that I'm good, holy, and just, because I was a pretty decent kid. As I became a teenager and things changed a little bit and I was like, oh, it's kind of like people accept me whenever I do the wrong thing. This is pretty cool. So I would do the wrong thing some, like so that I could be accepted among a, a group of friends. Um, and my behavior changed and so did my relationship with God. I didn't, I didn't feel like, oh, I'm doing the right thing most of the time, which means I'm right with God most of the time. But I felt, oh, I'm choosing the wrong path and therefore I'm alienated from God. There's no way God could accept me. Do I even know God? And that, that became the question for me. That's, that's really the question that I wrestled with all throughout high school, junior high, even college. I'm wrestling with this question, like, do I even know God? Like, based on the fact that I keep sinning, like, there's still these sins that I keep dealing with. How could God stand me like a sinner? How could he stand me? So it seems that Tozer had spoken truly when he said, what comes to our minds when we think of God is, our most important, is the most important thing about us. What I believed about God dictated my actions. It dictated my feelings. It dictated my success, my failure, and most importantly, how I felt in being close to God or distant from God. God was holy and just, and I was on the wrong side. Distant, nay, unwelcome in his presence because of my sin. Maybe you feel similarly, or you felt similarly. Your story may even be more checkered with sin, in your opinion. You're like, well, let me tell you about the things that I've done. Like, you think you've done bad by your teacher giving you a bad look. Well, one time I did, you could tell me a story, right? So we, we all feel like we, we have these experiences. Maybe you feel like you have extraordinary experiences of evil and of brokenness. Like, you have made some, like, yeah, you've made the wrong choice. I've made some really bad choices. Like, you don't know how bad my choices have been. Perhaps you were abused as a child. Perhaps your parents divorced, leaving you wondering if you were the reason. Maybe you faced the aftershock of suicide in your family. You lost parents or grandparents at a young age. Maybe as an adult, you've been a part of the heart-wrenching process of divorce, or you face the pain of being stabbed in the, in, the, in the back by someone you thought was a friend. You've experienced brokenness. You've, you've chosen the wrong path, yes, but you've also experienced brokenness, and this has affected how you view God like, and your standing with him. This was the case for a writer and is the case for a writer named John Green, who wrote The Fault in Our Stars, which has since become a movie, and he's written several other books. And he's just a very intelligent guy, um, very well-spoken. Um, but he lives in Indianapolis, 
Um, and he's, he's entertaining to listen to and to hear his thoughts on things. He's not a Christian in any, by any means, but he, he's written these books and he talks a little bit about his experience. And whenever he was in college, so he's, he's a young 19, 20-something-year-old, he actually entered into the priesthood. He, wanted to, he went to divinity school. He wanted to become an Episcopalian priest. Um, and during this experience, um, he wanted to get some like, experience in being someone of the priesthood. So he goes to a children's hospital to become a chaplain. Also, that is, was his job, so it was for money as well. But he's getting some experience seeing, like, how do going to test drive this occupation? How could I do on this? And what he, what he found is that the button was pressed for the chaplain most often whenever a child was about to die and the parents wanted that child to be baptized. Or, um, I mean, basically what he found is he, the button was pressed, the chaplain came, in the most horrible of situations. And so he saw firsthand the suffering of many, many people. And he recalls one particular experience that kind of changed the course of his life in that um, one night, a three-year-old bird victim came in screaming and crying in pain. And the parents were following the same behavior. And whenever the doctor took him away, they simply had the question, like, will our son live? And the doctor said, we're, you know, we're going to do our best. And John Green is left in the waiting room with these two parents whose child seems may, may not make it out alive. And he simply asked them, do you want to pray? And they, they reject it. It seems like it's not very connected to the experience. They're, they're not spiritual people. And so John Green sits with them for hours while he's being operated on. Once the surgery's done, um, John Green goes into the break room to get a drink, and he finds the doctor who's performed the surgery throwing up over the trash can and just broken and just thinks the, the last words of that child, right, I'm going to know them for the rest of my life, and he's going to die. And um, John Green leaves this situation. He checks out like that was the end of his shift and he leaves and he walks away from divinity school. He tells people it's because he doesn't want to learn Greek because Greek's really hard, but really it's because he doesn't, he, he realizes he doesn't have enough belief in God to be someone who could be a spiritual guide. And it's through this experience that he, he believes that he's learned something about God that has changed his perception in such a way that he couldn't, he couldn't believe in a God who allows this type of thing to happen. And so he, he prays, he continues to pray for this gracious God who he hopes is merciful and is going to act beneficently, beneficently um, on behalf of people. He's going to do good in the world, but he doesn't really believe it in his heart. And maybe you faced similar experiences. Uh, that's a heart-wrenching experience that he faced, but we have all faced experiences that have left us with question marks. Why, who is God? How does he work in the world? Why is there evil? And this all changes the way that we perceive God, who, how we understand who God is. If I ask each and every one of you who, God, who you thought God was before you came to Christ or if you right now don't know Jesus, and who do you think God is, everyone would have a different answer. Who do you think God is? How does he work in the world? 
And because of this, C.S. Lewis disagreed with A.W. Tozer. So A.W. Tozer thought that you, what, what is the most important thing about you is what you think of whenever you hear the word God. But C.S. Lewis disagreed. And he said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Though there's wisdom in Tozer's quote, and I believe that it has brought about many a thoughtful meditation of God and help people to draw close to him, I want us to get to this issue clearly. The most important thing about our church and humans in general is not what we think of God or how each of us who are fickle experience God or think about him because of the things that we've gone through, but rather to flip that on its head and to think of how God thinks of us. How does God think of us? Today we're going to examine that in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to start out in chapter 12. Now the book of Hebrews is an old sermon letter meant to be read aloud at the gatherings of the early church. The author's purpose was to show that the Old Testament law was created to point forward to something greater, that it was intentionally created, like the law was made imperfect, that there was a gap, not that it was wrong, imperfect as in not complete, that there was, there was something that it was all pointing to. And Hebrews' point is to say Jesus was the thing. That is exactly the completion of Scripture. The Hebrew followers of Jesus needed to understand who Jesus was in relationship to the Father and how he fits into the law. In short, who is God? What or who is Jesus? And what does this mean for the church? Does Jesus' fulfillment of the law mean that God changed his mind about what is right and how to have a relationship with him? Was he angry and vengeful, uh, an angry and vengeful God, but now has been shown to be more relaxed? Or as one pastor I heard say, is it that that was the God of the Old Testament and now we have the God of the New? And there's like, that's how it used to be whenever he was cranky and things have changed. In Exodus, when the children of Israel had decided to form a God of their own making out of gold, and Moses destroyed the newly obtained tablets of the commandments in a moment of frustration, Moses deals with the issue, he prays with God, and he asks that God would reveal himself. And this is what God says to Moses as he reveals himself to him in Exodus 34, 6. He says, as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slowed anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generation. There's a lot that we could unpack about that verse. There's a lot to dwell on and to understand about who God is, but I want you to realize that God, as he revealed himself to Moses, the first time in scripture that he reveals himself to Moses, also this is the most quoted book, uh, verse of the Bible by the Bible. It comes up in the Psalms. It comes up in the prophets. It comes up all over the Bible because this is who God is. And who does he 
how does he first reveal himself? Compassionate. He's compassionate. Now this word um, comes up again in Isaiah 54, 8, long after the golden calf incident where they had strayed already at the covenant ceremony. Now they have strayed yet again, but this time they've gotten themselves into exile and they are far from God. They Not only are they far from the temple, but they, they feel far from him because they have worshipped other gods. They pursued other gods. But this is what Isaiah reminds them of in Isaiah 54, verse 8. He says, With everlasting favor, I will have compassion on you. God tells them this in their sin and their rejection of him, that he will have everlasting favor and have compassion on you. Compassion is a core part of who God is. The word means feeling the suffering of another in a way that leads to action. And at its core, the Bible Project uh, kind of does a word study on this. It, it means womb-like. Um, it, it's literally, at its core, it's describing the, the feeling that a mother has for her child. Uh, and a, a mother who feels for her child is not going to say, wow, that's sad. And then like leave the child over there like crying and screaming and that kind of thing, but rather will act on the child's behalf to give it what it needs, right? And God is depicted in this way that he is compassionate. He doesn't view our suffering, view the sin, the, the result of our own choices and the result of the evil in the world. He doesn't view all of this detached and say, wow, that stinks. But rather he is compassionate. He decides to act. So it comes as no surprise that as we turn to Hebrews, it's a theme that the author drives in. God is not changed, but rather is revealed no longer in part, but in the whole. Jesus is the full view of God, of who God is. And as a result, contrary to what we have believed about God, the church, the church's response should be to move closer to him, to stay by his side, not to run away in fear, cowering in our unworthiness, as is our natural feeling ever since the beginning. We cower in fear in our sins. Hebrews points out five times that Jesus is at the right hand of God. It uses that language, the right hand. He is right next to God, that Jesus, as he ascended, he, he sat down at the right hand of God. God is perfectly revealed. This is a proximity thing. It's not actually telling us like, well, if you drop a pin on the map of where God is. It's right there next to God and telling us like where he is as if we wanted to know that, but rather showing us who he is, that he is at the right hand of God. This is God revealed is Jesus. And this is specifically tied to his atoning work, that he dies for our sins, that he covers our shame and our fear and our brokenness and pays the price for evil. That is who God is. And we see his heartbeat as we get into Hebrews 12. Last week, Pastor Daniel talked about who Jesus is as he revealed himself. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He's inviting of the weary and weighed down wanderers who come to him, who, who are invited to come to him because he is gentle and lowly. When we do go come to him at his invitation, we find rest that we have longed for. With him bearing the brunt of the load and weighed down 
and the weight of moving forward, our pace joins that of Jesus and we draw near. We find ourselves, um, our, our loads borne by him. Today, we're going to begin to build on that understanding. Understanding not just who he is, but what he's about. What does it mean that he is gentle and lowly of heart? How does that mean that he acts? So what is Jesus about? Um, and maybe this phrase doesn't make sense to you. I've just got a funny anecdote for what, is, what does it mean to be about something? Well, there's a, there's a show, Parks and Rec, where one stereotypically manly character um, enjoy, who enjoy, enjoys steak, hunting, fishing, and woodworking goes to a diner. And the waiter comes to take his order, and Ron Swanson, this manly guy, says, I'll take a number eight. And the waiter replies, sir, that's a party platter. It serves 12 people. And Ron replies confidently, I know what I'm about, son. So he, we know what Ron Swanson is about, right? He's, he's about huge helpings of food, lots of food. Like, he, he was confident in his course of action. Like, the waiter thought, hey, do you, do you realize how big that is? And he knew how big that was. He knew what he was doing. And the question we want to ask today is, what is Jesus about? What is it that Jesus cares about? What is it that he was confident in his course of action about as he came to this world Gentle and lowly of heart. What makes him happy? What is he about? Knowing that Jesus is the full revelation of God, we can look and find the answer to Lewis's counterpoint. What God thinks of us is the most, thi- most important thing about us. So what does God think of sinners and wanderers and broken people? Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he endure the cross? Why did he go to that place of suffering and of torture? It was his joy. Why did he endure the cross? It was his joy that would get him there. And he's actually looking beyond the cross, not like, oh, the the cross, that's going to be such a great time. But rather he's looking beyond the cross and he's looking at you and he's looking at me. He's looking at his church who is full of sinners and wanderers and sufferers. And he's looking at them and it is his joy to be able to take their burdens. It is exactly what he came here to do. He's gentle and lowly of heart. His invitation is his joy. That you would come to him in your brokenness is exactly why he came to this earth. It's the joy that was set before him. It's as if the cross were simply a hurdle for him to be able to get to us. We are the goal. He loves us that much that he suffered the cross as simply a hurdle to get to us. He looked at this gruesome and terrible thing, an agonizing death, and he saw beyond it that sinners would find harbor in him, and that was his joy. This is Jesus' heartbeat, that sinners would be restored to fellowship with him. This isn't after 
we get our lives straightened out. He wasn't looking beyond us uh, or looking beyond the cross and seeing a bunch of really cleaned up people in their Sunday best, attending a good Bible-believing church and doing the right thing and saying, that is what I'm going for. Like it's for the good people who are going to choose me. He looked beyond the cross. He endured the suffering of the cross in order to atone for our sins. It is exactly for our sins that he came. And because he did, we go back to the beginning of Hebrews, and I'm going to invite you to turn with me since you're already in Hebrews. It's just a few pages, guys. Uh, Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren to become human, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that, he himself has suffered. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then turn the page and go to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, which means into God's presence, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can also have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. I have a friend named Keith who has a, uh, whenever he was in college there in Louisville, his wife worked as an enrollment counselor at a college that I don't remember, but for purposes of this story will be the University of Arkansas, okay? So she works as an enrollment counselor for the University of Arkansas, and people who are interested in, these freshmen who are interested in going or people transferring or whatever, they call her and they're literally, Uh, kind of like she is the lifeline for them for months, like so that they know what they need to enroll in, how they need to do things, filling out forms, getting their way around the college, like, hey, where do I find the whatever hall? Oh, okay, you're going to go up here, take a right, whatever. And she can say all these things, but the funny thing is that she never went to the University of Arkansas. She's never been there. She will never go there. She has no affinity for this college. She just works at a remote place as an enrollment counselor. And so it put her in some funny situations whenever students would be like, hey, I I really want to come meet you, like after talking to you for all this time. She's like, "Uh, well, actually, I'm in Louisville, so you won't be able to see me there. I think sometimes we can see God in the same way. We see him as detached and distant from our experience, particularly from our suffering and from our sin. 
But the beauty of the verses that we have just talked about, that we've just read, is that Jesus is not detached from our experience, but rather he was tempted in every way. He suffered just like we did, like we do. And because of that, he can sympathize with us. He shows compassion as one who has been there. So the question is, who is God? Yeah, he's the creator. He is holy. He's all-powerful. But he's also compassionate. He felt our exact suffering and acted on our behalf. He came to this earth and he suffered thirst, hunger, torture, death. But not only physically did he suffer, he also suffered mentally. He was misunderstood, shamed by his people, accused, stabbed in the back by close friends, and rejected at his time of need. The God of the universe saw our helpless condition, and while we were still indifferent to him, he did all of this for us. He did this for the ignorant sins, or the, the sins we didn't even know about, like, oh, I didn't know I messed up whenever I did that, but now I do. He, he died for that. He came for that. He suffered for that. But he also suffered the things for the things that you did and you knew you were doing wrong. You made a conscious choice. Like, yes, I know I'm choosing the wrong way, and I'm going to do it anyway because what matters is what I want. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of, that we didn't know about, the sins that we were incidental and that happened because of our circumstances or something like that, but he died for the things that we knew were wrong. He also suffered and experienced the, the evil of this world that is a result of our sin. Jesus suffered all of this for us. The God of the universe saw our helpless condition. And while we were indifferent and came to us, where you slipped up and where you, you knew exactly where you, what you were doing. And he knows the struggle because he became human and was subject to our weaknesses. In his resurrection, he took on the role as the once and for all high priest who represents us to God. And when we draw near to God, we don't have to wonder if we're going to be accepted. Because we know that in Christ we are accepted, we are loved, we are his own body, we are his church. And this is different than a simple fix for the problem of evil, like we imagine God should have done, is just like a boom, done, evil is gone. Everything's perfect in the world, God, why didn't you do that? That's so easy. But instead what he did is he sent his son to actually suffer in our place, for our sins, in order to save the world. So it wasn't just a saving of the world, but it was an experience of the brokenness that we created so that he could sympathize with us in our suffering. We join not only in his victory whenever we come to follow him, but also in his suffering. He bears that with us. Imagine that you have stage three cancer. And it's spread and it's wreaked havoc on your body. And you need life-saving treatment, right? You need chemotherapy. You need 
all of the procedures, that the, the surgeries that the doctor is going to perform. And so you go to a cancer doctor who knows how to deal with the issue and can tell you what you need. And you trust this doctor based on knowledge. Like, you, you know, he went to school for a super long time. He has performed successful surgeries. He knows what he's doing. That's, that's enough for you to be able to go to him. But if he started to give you some life advice on, like, how to deal with having gone through cancer and, like, hey, this is really what you should do whenever your hair starts to fall out from the chemo. Like, and he started to give you some, like, this is how you're going to deal with this mentally. You probably wouldn't respect that very much. Because though he's seen it, he hasn't experienced it. But now I want, you, I want you to imagine the same doctor in the same position, except he has gone through having cancer. He had cancer. He went through chemo. He had the surgeries. He went through the feeling of, am I going to live through this? And then he does. And on the other side of this experience, he treats people who have cancer. Now, I think my hunch is you're going to listen to this guy a little bit better than you do this guy. You're going to feel a certain kinship with the one who has been through your situation more than the one who knows about your situation. Jesus doesn't just know about our situation. He has been through our situation. He has faced the pain and the suffering that comes along with human existence. Just the evil, the hurt, the, the, the longings that we have. He's faced temptation of sin, yet without sin. And in all of this, he invites us to take part in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He invites us as one who has been there. You would trust this person, this cancer doctor. You would, and we should trust Jesus. He can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in all points as we are. He became human. He knows our pain. And he invites us to be with him. He knows what we've gone through. And he still says, come to me. All you who are weary, who are tired, who are weighed down, come to me and I will give you rest. On the flip side, and this is the, this is the, the hard truth that comes along with this open invitation and the good news. There's also bad news. Those who bear their own sins are going to bear God's wrath. They'll be removed eternally from his presence in hell. They've rejected his gift of grace and love and rejected the open invitation of Jesus. And this isn't because God is cruel and because he's unjust, but this is because of that same feeling that you had whenever I was telling the story about John Green and you're thinking about this child who's suffered these unbearable burns and the parents who know that within two years of losing a child, almost every couple has a divorce like that it's the great majority, and that they're, they're in this place of so much suffering, and we say that should not exist here on earth. There's no way that should exist here on earth. That same feeling that you have of that being foreign, that it doesn't belong, that's exactly what Jesus came for. 
This is, this is exactly why he came. He came, not, he came to save us from this, but he also came and he said, if you're not going to accept this invitation, then you're, you're going to bear it alone. We, it's foreign. It doesn't belong in God's world. It's not going to live forever. Evil will be done away with once and for all, and we want that. But God has to deal with evil once and for all, and it will be, com- it will be completely removed, all evil, will be completely removed from God forever. And this, there is no middle ground. You are either over here, you're fulfilling his joy and given this open invitation of the medicine that you need in order to survive, of being in God's presence eternally, the open invitation available to all, completing his joy, or you are rejecting his free gift and you're dead in your sins and trespasses, and we'll face the repercussions. And that's, it's a sad truth, but God's arms are open in Jesus. Jesus has an open invitation. It's not an exclusive group of people. It's not the people who can really clean themselves up. It's all those who will come to him, who turn to him, recognizing that they don't have the answers. So where will you be in this faithful hour? When we find ourselves in one of these two places, either eternally secure in Christ, our sins atoned for, in the presence of God forever, eternally, where we belong, where we were created to be, or will you reject the free gift and instead live and then die dead in your sins, live eternally apart from him. Those are the only two choices. But I think there's also another choice for those who find themselves with God even now. And I'm, I'm speaking now to the church, to those who believe, who are saved. There are times whenever even, whenever you're here with God and you, you experience, you've experienced his grace but then you find yourself turning towards sin. You have given in to those impulses or you've done the wrong thing, you didn't realize you were doing the wrong thing, but then you did. Then you kind of, you're over here with God, but you kind of like, "Ah, I'm gonna turn my back a little bit. Like, I just wanna hide some of this that I'm going through because it's, I know it's not welcome in God's presence. God does not wanna see all this junk, this baggage that I bring into this relationship. It is the joy of the Lord. It is the joy of, it is Jesus' heartbeat for him to be able to forgive you of your sins. That doesn't just apply to sinners who find themselves um, dead in their sins. It applies to those who are in Christ. Like It is the joy of the Lord for you to be able to confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Jesus wants you to not hide and cower in shame and fear, but he wants us to turn to him and openly confess. And his arms are open, ready to embrace us. Whenever we feel distant from God and we have already followed Jesus, it's, it's perceived. It's not real. You're still with God, but you are cowering and you have, you have severed your closeness with God, 
not in reality, like he's, he's like, hey, get out of here. You're hiding sin. But rather, you have, you're hiding from him and the relationship is open. He's ready to take you back. He wants you to have a good relationship with him, to, to have his joy fulfilled and your joy fulfilled. You have to turn to him. You have to be open. And he wants you to bring your brokenness, bring your shame, bring your questions to him because he's paid for it all. It's the joy of the Lord. So now I ask you what Lewis said about Tozer's quote. He said, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it's related to how he thinks of us. So the question for you this morning is knowing how he thinks of you, knowing that in your sin and in your brokenness, he loves you, that his joy is complete whenever you turn to him. What do you think of him? Will you reject him? Will you turn and bear the weight of your own sins? Will you cower in shame and in fear? Or will you turn to him? Complete his joy. This is his heartbeat. 